Thanks for checking out the YVF podcast today. If this is your first time listening in with us, we want you to know that you are loved. Wherever you're joining us from, we hope this message encourages you, builds your faith, and helps you in whatever season of life you're in. Now here's Pastor Kevin. I really sense the presence of the Lord here this evening, and I believe that through his word he wants to minister to each one of our hearts and each one of our lives. Every person comes in to the house of God with their own needs and their own prayers and the things that they're seeking after from the Lord, just like we see in the gospel, so many needs, so many people, so many different ones, and the Bible tells us that Jesus went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed of the devil. And, you know, when we're in the situation, uh, whatever that situation may be, most often we feel like we're the only person who's going through that. And, you know, our minds tell us, no, that, that's not really true. Of course, somebody else is going through that. But the temptations, the trials... Uh, oftentimes when we hear the word temptation, we just think of being tempted to do something bad by the devil, and it does include that. But the word temptation really means a testing. The testings, the trials, the temptations we go through, the Bible tells us that they're common to every man. But we're going to see tonight that Jesus went through all the temptations, the trials, and even more than any of us have ever been through, yet without sin, and that he alone has the power to heal us, to deliver us, to set us free. So I just really want you to open your hearts to the Word of God this evening, because I really believe the Lord will minister some things to you that we've already been singing about. I love it when the Holy Spirit just puts the songs together and they go right with what the Word of God is saying. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your Word this evening. I thank you for your presence here, Lord Jesus, that we're Two or more of us are gathered in your name, that you are there in our midst, that you are the same yesterday, to today, and forevermore, and you are still still going about in all of our lives in healing everyone who is oppressed of the devil, Lord. We just turn to you this evening. I ask Holy Spirit you speak to us through the word of God this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to begin with chapter 2. We're still in that section of Hebrews where we're talking, uh, as I've divided it up, that Christ is superior to the angels. And I just remind you, I probably at some point will stop reminding you of this because you'll get it for sure. But the book of Hebrews or the letter to the Hebrews is uh, a number of different arguments, if you will, uh, based on scripture from the Old Testament, where Christ is being shown over and over again to be superior to everything and to everyone and to uh, call us to not shrink away from him, to not walk away from him no matter what we're going through in our lives, that there's nothing better and there's really nothing and no one that can help us and that can deliver us and can be our, our refuge. Our refuge is in Jesus Christ alone. So I'm going to jump right in here with chapter 2 and we're going to read verses 1 through 4 and we'll start with that. When we left off in chapter 1, uh, the last thing that I was talking to you about is how uh, angels are servants and that the Jesus Christ is the son. And of course, as a son, he serves in the house of his father, but the, there is a difference between serving in the house of your master and serving in the house of your father. That Jesus said, I and the father are one, 
and that the will of the Father is my will. And as I said to you last week, in serving the Father, Jesus is serving the house of the Father, so he's serving his house, and uh, he is the inheritor of that house. But angels are in the class of... Uh, the word slave doesn't really work very good in our horrid American experience of slavery, but in the Old Testament system of slavery, it was more like an indentured servitude. And so we usually use the word servant, but not in the sense of servants that get paid a good salary, <laughs> more in the sense of servants that have no choice but to do that of their master. And so in that sense, the word slave is, is a good English word for how the angels are being described here. But they're slaves of love, they're slaves of desire, they love the Father, but they don't know the full will of the Father. And that was what we left off um, talking about. So, chapter 2, I'll read verses 1 through 4. For this reason, we must pay, for what reason? For that very reason I've just been talking about. For this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, the reference is being made here to the law given to Moses through the agency of angels, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was at first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. God also testifying with them, both by signs and wonders, and by various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his own will. And we're going to be looking at another scripture in Hebrews in a few minutes, and I'll talk a little bit about these signs and wonders also. But this reference is being made to those apostles who preached the gospel that we read about in, uh, the, book, uh, in the book of Acts. So the beginning of chapter 2 is a conclusion to the argument that's set out in chapter 1. And as we go through Hebrews, these just build one upon another. And the logical conclusion to that argument is that if the law, which was ministered by angels who are inferior to the Son, if the law that was ministered by angels could, number one, not be altered, it could not be changed, nothing in the law could be changed. In the law, it was first said, that no man should add anything to these words, and no man should take anything away from these words, or he's guilty of the entire law. That's repeated in the book of Revelation at the end of the Bible also, and so it encompasses the entirety of the word of God. So if the law could not be altered, and if you broke the law, the punishment would be quick and it would be severe. If you've ever spent time reading Leviticus, for example, you're, it's kind of shocking, some of the punishments for certain things that are very common in our world today. Now, I have to tell you, as a practical matter, as a practical matter, uh, in the history of Israel, not all of those punishments were enacted the way that they were said to be enacted, um, and especially leading up to the time of Jesus. Even with God, his mercy always takes first place over his judgment. But that doesn't mean that the judgment is is not there. If you accept his mercy, you get his mercy. Remember when Cain killed Abel, the first murder, the first great, well, I won't say great sin, because Adam and Eve, that's the first great sin, but the, the murder, when Cain kills his own brother, 
And so the punishment for that murder, as God has set it out, is capital punishment, which capital punishment in the law is the foundation of society. It's the foundation of order in society. Uh, a lot of people don't understand that. And capital punishment can be extremely unfair when our court systems don't work right. But God established capital punishment. And yet God did not kill Cain, did he? He had mercy on Cain. Instead. So we see, even in the very beginning in Genesis, that God intends to show us mercy, if only we will receive that mercy. Nonetheless, the uh, punishment of the law is severe, and the punishment, the penalty enacted is, is, is for everyone. And so we read in the New Testament in Romans that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, and that the wages or the penalty, the punishment for that sin, is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And we read in the New Testament that if you have broken the law in even one tiny little matter, then you are guilty of the entire law. Okay? So it's very severe. So he's saying, if that's the case with the Old Testament, if that's the case with the law that was ministered by angels, then, then how much more so is the gospel unchanging? It cannot be altered. And the one who neglects the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, who neglects this great salvation, he has no way of escape. He has no other refuge. The word neglect in the Greek has a rich meaning, and some other uh, ideas that we could put with the word neglect is, is to give no heed to the gospel, to not listen to the gospel, to ignore the gospel, or even just to have a careless attitude toward the gospel. And I think that applies not just to unbelievers, because this has not been written to unbelievers, it's written to Christians, that in our lives we need to give careful heed. It says that for this reason we must pay much closer attention to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, I think that that still holds true for us today. I think that's true for me. I think it's true for every one of us. When the Bible says things like much closer, that's really strong language that we're not paying enough attention to the gospel. And we need to pay more attention to the gospel. And not just time-wise, but quality-wise, really pay attention to the word of God, that it is our salvation. And there is no way of escape outside of Jesus Christ and outside of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Luke chapter 8, verse 18, it says, Jesus says, so take care how you listen. Not just that you listen, but how you listen. For whoever has, to him more shall be given. And whoever does not have, even what he thinks he has, shall be taken away from him. Well, Sunday we were talking about this parable of the talents, and the guy with the one talent, he thought he had something, and he thought that was going to be good enough just to give that back to the master. But the little that he had, because he was not faithful with that, even that little was taken away from him. That doesn't sound fair to us. That's not our idea of justice. That's not our idea of fairness. Uh, alas, that's God's idea of justice and God's idea of fairness. And like I said, we can't expect God to fit into our framework. We need to come over into his. So we need to pay very careful attention to how we listen to the word of God. Um, he talks about... Um, not being able to have a way of escape uh, here. How will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? 
So that indicates to us what we, in our introduction, in the couple of lessons we talked about the kind of persecution they were going through, that each one of these people who received this letter knew, and I believe that each one of us know today, that we need some way of escape, to escape the tribulations of this world. Certain things are afoot in the world today, and I know sometimes you hear some news, you hear something that's going on, and you just think, what are we going to do? We need some way of escape. There's nothing wrong with needing a way of escape, because a way of escape is salvation. But these Christians, they were being tempted, and I think we are tempted also, to try to find that way of escape in some kind of compromise, some kind of deal that we cut with the devil, that we cut with the world that, that, that's around us. And the warning of Hebrews is that there is no way of escape if you're neglecting the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. In him alone and in his gospel alone do we have any hope of salvation. And so we need to take a stand. We need to be strong in our gospel witness, in what we hear, in what we speak. We need to not embrace the lies of this world, but embrace the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, because that is the only way of escape. And then he talks about them drifting away, uh, that uh, they're, they're drifting away. And we, we, we see that in verse 1, it says, we do not drift, be careful that we do not drift away from it. We see that this, this phrase kind of indicates a ship that's, that's at sea. And this ship that's at sea, it doesn't have a captain. And there are sailors on the ship, and, but none of them are captains. None of them know the course. None of them know where they're going. All of them know how to keep the ship floating. Okay, There's no problem with the, a shipwreck here. There's other scriptures that talk about shipwreck. But they're drifting off course. They're slowly drifting off course because they don't know where they're going. In verse 10, and we'll read that here in a few minutes, but it says that Jesus is the author of our salvation. The author of our salvation. Well, the word author in the Greek, uh, it actually means uh, a hero. It's what the Greeks would have called a hero. It's the founder of a city. Somebody that establishes something. Okay? That when we hear author, we think of somebody that just wrote a book. You know, but but he, he's the author of the book, if somebody wrote a book, because he put his ideas on the paper. He established that book, okay? So Jesus is the captain. He's the hero of our salvation. So if the captain isn't on board in the church, then the church is going to get off course. It's going to drift away. So they're drifting away from what they had heard, and slowly but surely, the word of the Lord is vanishing from their sight. They're losing the vision of the captain. They're losing the vision of their hero of their leader, of the author of their salvation. In Proverbs chapter 3, I'm just going to read a few verses out of there. In Proverbs chapter 3, verse 21, we read, My son, let them not vanish from your sight. The them is wisdom, understanding, knowledge. I'll just say it's the word of God. Let not the word of God vanish from your sight. That's what's happening. The word is vanishing from their sight because they're moving off course. I don't know, have, I know you have, but try to think of an experience where something is vanishing from your sight as you're driving away from it in your rear view mirror or something. It's, it's slowly but surely just disappearing, and soon it'll just be completely lost over the horizon. 
It says, my son, let them not vanish from your sight. Keep sound wisdom and discretion, so they will be life to your soul and adornment to your neck. Then you will walk in your way securely, and your foot will not stumble. And when you lie down, you will not be afraid. And when you lie down, your sleep will be sweet. Do not be afraid of sudden fear, nor of the onslaught of the wicked when it comes. For the Lord will be your confidence, and will keep your foot from being caught. At the end of chapter 2, we're going to see that they had a lot of fear. And that fear was keeping them in bondage. But the reason why is because they're losing sight of the author of their salvation. Okay, let's look at verse 5. And I'm going to read verses 5 through 9. So in verse 5 it says, For he did not subject to angels the world to come, concerning which we are speaking. But one has testified somewhere, saying, What is man that you remember him, or the son of man that you are concerned about him? You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor and have appointed him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. But we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. So here in chapter 2, and this evening, we're going to be, without doing some kind of careful study and looking at a bunch of verses in the Bible where it is everywhere, we're going to see a lot about suffering and a lot about humility. And it's very important for us to understand, because this picture is being drawn, how God brings glory out of suffering. How God brings exaltation out of humility. The scripture says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. And in due season, when he's ready, he will exalt you. But you must go through times just as Jesus did, as we follow Jesus, of suffering. Because in those times of suffering, that's when God is working the deepest work of faith in our heart that will bring forth the fruit in due season. And so... We understand, as it says here, that he tasted death for everyone. Now, there's one thing I'm going to point out, because I don't know if you have a version like mine, New American Standard, or if you would even notice this. But in verse 8, uh, it says, He left nothing that is not subject to him. And the he is capitalized, even though it's not the beginning of the sentence. So that's referring to God, right? And him is not capitalized, even though it's at the end of the sentence. So that's referring not to God, supposedly, okay? I don't know if you even notice that, or if it's even like that in your Bible. But first of all, there's no capitalization in the original Greek. That's something English, okay? <laughs> Secondly, there's actually in the very original uh, autographs that were written in the most ancient manuscripts, there's not even spaces between letters, and there's definitely no punctuation and no verse marks or anything, okay? Uh, secondly, in the King James, there's no capitalization of the pronoun for God either because they didn't used to do that in English. So it's no big deal. But what is a big deal, I want, I want this to be clear that these verses from 6 through 8, which are from Psalm 8, the author of Hebrews is saying these verses are speaking about Jesus. And were I to be writing this particular Bible in English, I would have made that hymn capitalized. So that it was very clear that this is speaking about Jesus. It's not just talking about man, about every man. It's talking about Jesus, which is, is obvious 
in, in what's being spoken here. And then another little point I want to point out to you uh, is in verse 6. It says, one has testified somewhere. That sounds so ambiguous, as if the author of Hebrews couldn't remember where that came from. And that's not the case. The wording is, is really special, because what it's showing to us is that it's really important for us to find this place in the Bible and read it in the context, okay? Because just like <coughs> anything that you would write today that was not maybe a doctoral dissertation or something, but a a, a, this is real important, especially in ancient literature, all ancient literature, things are written much more briefly than they're written today for very obvious reasons. It was an entire profession to even be able to write, okay, and to put words down on papyrus and, and to, 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 you know, express these things. And people just thought in different ways. And the Holy Spirit brings the scripture out to us. Sometimes things seem like they're kind of truncated or cut off or something like that. But our job as students of the Word of God and paying careful attention to it is to go in depth to take that little clue and look up more and study more. And to those who have, more will be given to them as they search those out. Having said that, I'm not going to open up Psalm 8. We're just going to go with the verses that are written here. But it's indicating to us that the entire psalm uh, is important, that the entire context of that psalm is important to us. Okay, that's just, just a couple little points that I, I wanted to bring up. Now, going back to verse 5. It says, For he did not subject to angels the world to come, concerning which we are speaking. So what, what is the writer of Hebrews saying that is being spoken about? The writer is saying that we are speaking about the world to come, if you look carefully at that sentence. And the words, the world, I already gave this to you before, in the Greek is not the normal word for the world in the New Testament, cosmos. The words here mean the inhabited world, okay? where people actually live. It's talking about the population of the world. That's actually pretty cool. Because what, what the writer is saying, what the Holy Spirit is indicating here, is your, this is just really cool. Your focus should not be on everything going on in the new cycle of the world today. I mean, we need to know that stuff. It helps us to pray. It helps us to understand, to plan. We shouldn't be stupid. We shouldn't close our eyes. But that should not be the main focus of our lives. And we should not allow fear to be in our hearts because of what's going on in the world. We should not have a fear of death, as it says later in this, this chapter. That our focus should be on the population of heaven. Our focus should be on that entire universe that is coming when Jesus Christ comes back again, because that is all that is eternal. So that's what's being spoken of. Not the world we live in, but the one to come when Christ comes again. That's why in the scripture so often we are referred to as pilgrims, as strangers, walking across this earth because this world is not our home. And so even though angels, and that could include, if you want, demons, it can include great kings of men. It can include great prophets. It can include anyone else. Even though angels may seem to have this age subjected under their feet, this is actually not the case. We have to draw a difference between what seems to be true and what is true. Because what seems to be true in this age is not really true in the eternal sense of truth because there is an age that is coming 
okay? There is a world that is coming. And so when we focus on the world that is coming, we see that all things, all things, without exclusion, all things have been subjected by God under the feet of his Son, the Son of God and the Son of Man, Jesus Christ. And to prove that in this conclusion to the argument, Psalm 8 is brought forward where it says, you have put all things in subjection under his feet. But then it says uh, at the end of verse 8, but now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. That's just blunt and honest. Okay? When I look around the world today, I do not see that everything is subjected to Jesus. In fact, I see a whole lot more that's not subjected to Jesus than that is subjected to Jesus. So our, our, our vision, remember they've been drifting away from that vision, is drawn back to the kingdom of heaven, to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, to understand that what you see today is transitory. It is passing. It will not remain forever. It just is what it is today, but it is not what it is today forever. All things will change because in the kingdom of God, all things have already been subjected under his feet. Cancer has been subjected under his feet and there is no cancer in the kingdom of God. Divorce, separation, pain, suffering, whatever, it's all been subjected under his feet. But we live in a day, we're in the midst of a battle, whether we like it or not. We maybe would have liked for everything to be wrapped up in one day, like Jesus died on the cross, rose from the dead, and the next day it was all over, right? But think about, would you really like that? Because then you never would have got born. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I mean, it just is what it is. He's waiting for the precious fruit of the ground. And he trusts us to be engaged in this battle. But we have to keep our eyes on the gospel of Jesus Christ, on the coming of his kingdom. And we have to walk in, in that faith. We see that kingdom today. We see everything subjected under his feet when we look at the resurrected Christ. Because when I see that Jesus raised from the dead, then I know that death has been subjected under his feet. And if death has been conquered, everything's been conquered. Because the only thing I was ever afraid of in my life was a fear of death. Everything I was afraid of could be boiled down to a fear of death. Afraid of losing my job, afraid to lose my wife, afraid to lose my kids, afraid to lose my health. I mean, you could just sum it all up in a fear of death. But he has conquered death already. So we see that spiritually, but we do not see it physically. And that difference is made here, and it's going to be made again in Hebrews. For it's in Hebrews where it talks about the word of God only can divide asunder between soul and spirit. It's only the word of God, only when we walk in faith, that we can see things the way that they really need to be seen, the way that they really are. So we see this in his resurrection. We see this by his Holy Spirit. Look over at Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6, and it's got this really strong warning that we're not going to talk about tonight. We'll get to that much later. But in Hebrews 6, chapter, uh, chapter 6, verse 4, we read, For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance. Don't ask any questions about that, because I'll teach on it, and we'll get to it later. <laughs> but I want you to notice this, that 
the church that's receiving this letter, the, the Holy Spirit considers that these are people who have been enlightened. Then that's what we see, that they've heard this word already. These are people who uh, have tasted the powers of the age to come. They have seen, uh, as we read in uh, verse 4, they have seen various miracles, gifts of the Holy Spirit, signs, wonders. They have tasted of the Holy Spirit. He lives on the inside of them. And so what's being said here is there's no excuse for you not to be able to keep your eyes on the captain. Keep your eyes on the prize. Keep your eyes on the vision. You know that there is a world to come. You know that there is an age that is coming, and you have to focus your eyes on that. It's not always easy. Maybe it's never easy. But you have to keep your eyes on the vision and keep them on Jesus Christ, who is the captain of our salvation. So Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, I'm not going to open it right now, but you know what it says. I mean, in a sense, it says that faith is the substance. We've talked about that word, hypostasis. Faith is the substance of everything that we've ever hoped for and everything that we expect. And it's the evidence, it's the proof, it's the conviction that everything we cannot see actually does exist, of things not seen. And so the, the, the eyes that we have to see with are just faith. Just faith. When we walk by faith, when we look by faith, what's faith? Just hearing God's word and doing it. Remaining faithful to the Lord. When we walk by that faith, then we keep our eyes on Jesus Christ. What we do see today, and we see this already physically because we're looking back in history at the cross, we're looking back in history at the resurrection, that Jesus, in fact, was made lower than the angels. Even though he's superior to the angels, and we talked about this last week already, he was made lower than the angels for a time, for a while. And this is in particular in his death, because angels do not die. But the Son of God died on the cross. So he was made lower than the angels, for a while, but then he was raised because of his humbling himself, because of his suffering. He was raised, he was exalted higher than the angels in his resurrection and in his ascension to the right hand of the Father. And the writer of Hebrews says, we see that. If we see that only spiritually and can't see that also physically, can't see that with all of our beings, then we're not paying enough attention to the Gospels. Because what I'm talking about now is not an age that's coming, but a historical fact that's already occurred. It's a real part of our, I mean, really try to get that down on the inside of you, that this has already happened. Jesus has raised from the dead. He has conquered death. He has conquered disease. He has conquered poverty. He has conquered everything that we suffer from in our lives. And we can trust him and find our refuge in him. This happened by the grace of God, it says. The grace is kind of a, a synonym for the Spirit of God. In Romans chapter 8, verse 11, uh, when, when the Spirit comes, God's grace comes. Where, where God's grace is, there is His Spirit. It says in Romans 8, verse 11, if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. So we see the Trinity here, right? 
him who raised Jesus from the dead, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised, and, and there's the question, does he dwell in us? Well, yes, if we're truly believers, we're really Christians, we're receiving this word. It's kind of rhetorical. If he dwells in you, then you should realize this. If he dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. And that speaks of your future resurrection, that anything that you have in the future, you actually have it already now. It's yours. Do you understand? And that scripture is actually a strong basis to stand on when you're asking God for healing, when you're asking God for deliverance, when you're asking God to help solve some problems that totally relate to your physical life here on this earth. Because it says that by that same power, by that same spirit, by that same grace, the Father who raised Jesus from the dead, by the same spirit that, and I love this, already dwells on the inside of you. The power is already there. He will make alive, actually like how the King James says it, he will quicken. I just like that because I've always been slow in those short races. And, you know, and quicken actually in Old English means to make alive. But he will, it just sounds so powerful. The, the quicken, that he will quicken your mortal bodies, your mortal bodies, your fleshly bodies, that he will make you alive by that same power. Well, I heard something on the radio today that was just terrible. It's get in the car, you push the button because you're just driving home and just want to hear some noise. And I pushed that button, and I didn't like that, so I pushed that button. That was just static, like it always is in Earrington. So I pushed that button, and uh, I think his name's Lars Larson or something, you know, the talk radio guy. He comes on, and that was kind of interesting what he was saying. Then they broke for a commercial, and they came back. And when he came back, he was making a commercial for somebody, right? And the first thing he said, if you're a man and you live to be a certain age, the odds are you're going to get some form of prostate cancer. And I had been meditating on this, and I immediately just turned that off, and I said, oh, and he said, because that's just how we were made. I turned that off, and I just said out loud, no, that is not how we were made. That is not God's will for our lives. I hate when we fill our minds with all, I'm not talking bad about this guy, I know he's just selling some vitamins or something probably, I didn't even stay on to find out what he was selling, but we fill our minds with death. We fill our minds and we make our confession based on what we see with our eyes today. I don't know, statistics, maybe that is the odds. I have no idea. But that's the age that we live in. That's not the age to come. And Jesus said, he who believes in me will never die. I am the resurrection and the life. So many years ago, I started just confessing that. I'm never going to die. Now, I'm not stupid. I know that if I live long enough and Jesus hasn't come back, my physical body's going to die. But I'm not going to die. I'm going to be alive. And that physical body's going to be raised from the dead. So I'd rather focus on the truth that's eternal truth than on what we just see in this world today. Because I have, and you have, tasted of the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. And we need to walk in that. So that's what they are being challenged to do to come back to the truth. That though Jesus was humbled, though Jesus suffered on the cross, he has today been exalted to the right hand of the Father. And look with me at verses 10 through 13. We read verses 10 through 13. It says, for it was fitting for him. That's a real important word, fitting. It was fitting for him. 
That means it's pleasing to God. It's not God's plan B. God didn't fall off the throne and think, oh, Jesus is getting crucified. I really messed this one up. It was God's will. Established, pre-established, predetermined before we were ever created. And we don't have to understand that. It's just the truth. It was fitting for him. For whom are all things and through whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory. So please notice, we sang about it in that first song we sang tonight, what God's purpose was in sending Jesus to the cross, why it was to make me his treasure. We sang those words. He actually wanted to bring me and you to his glory. He wanted us to be in his family. That's why Jesus went to the cross. And this was the plan of the Father. It was fitting in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author, that's that word, the hero, the captain, of their salvation through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father. For which reason he, and this is now, he who sanctifies is referring to Jesus, and he is referring to Jesus here, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brethren in the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him, and again, behold I and the children whom God has given to me. Okay, we need to talk about this a little bit more extensively. It may seem really strange to the Jews and to the Gentile, and it does. That's why Paul said that the cross is a stumbling block, that it's foolishness. It's just complete foolishness, that the Jews want it one way, the Gentiles want it another way, but none of them like the cross. It doesn't make any sense. But it's the way of God for our salvation. It may seem strange to us, but it is fitting for God. The same word fitting is used in Matthew 3.15 when Jesus comes to John, uh, uh, John the Baptist to be uh, baptized. And John the Baptist says, you know, I, I can't baptize you. You ought to be baptizing me. And Jesus says to him that this is fitting. In the Greek, it's the same word, that we might fulfill all things, that we have to fulfill this. This is God's way. I have to be humbled. So already in the baptism was this humbling at the very beginning of his ministry. Jesus is taking the road of the cross. Because to be baptized, I mean, you know, baptism for us is, you know, this big celebration and exciting. But never forget that it's all about repentance. Right? Repent is what John is preaching. It's about death. When you go under the water, if the pastor just held you down there for ten minutes, you'd be dead. But it's symbolic, so we don't do that, obviously. But it's about dying, being buried with him in baptism, and raised again in him to walk in a new life. Right? So Jesus humbles himself, but he doesn't have sin. Why is he getting baptized? Because he's taking on himself the sin of the entire world. He says it's fitting. This way is fitting. This way of suffering pleases the Father. Everything that exists without exception comes from the Father and comes through the Father and exists for the Father. But this is the way that he chose us because he wanted to save us and he wanted to bring us 
as his sons into his family, back into his family, as we were created to be into all of his glory. That's a lot of theological stuff there. But I, I can think it's important for us to apply it to our lives right now today. Please never doubt, whatever you're suffering, whatever you're going through, that God's purpose is to glorify you, is to bless you, to bring you up another notch of glory as you go from glory to glory, as you go from faith to faith. It's his purpose to bring us to glory. The Son of God, the Messiah, was perfected in his ministry of salvation through suffering. I don't have the time to look at these, but you could look at Acts chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, Acts chapter 5, verses 30 and 31, and throughout the book of Acts, when they preach Jesus Christ, they pre preach his suffering, and that through his suffering and through his death, that he was exalted. That because he humbled himself, he was exalted. Because he suffered, he was glorified. That is the gospel. So that by the sacrifice of Jesus, our sin might be done away with. And we might be brought back into that very sonship for which we were created. That's called atonement. That's called being made right with God. It's called sanctification. Um, if you've been around church for a generation, for long, as long as I have been, then you know that uh, sanctification is kind of a byword that's taken up by different churches and different places or denominations to mean one thing or another thing. But I just want to make it real simple for you. When, when you sanctify something, that just means you set it apart for a special use. You know, it's really special for you. We're not sanctified because we don't do anything wrong, okay? In 1 John, John makes it really clear that, that if you say that you don't have any sin or you don't do anything wrong, then you're just making God out to be a liar. But then in another place, he says, but then you don't sin. And it's kind of weird when you read that, and I'm not going to get into it, but it's talking about sanctification. That God doesn't see our sin when we confess it and we put it under the blood of Jesus. He doesn't see that sin. He doesn't see that failure. But if we go so far with that and get all proud and think we don't have it, that's not right either. But we have been sanctified. We've been made special to God by Jesus Christ. We are special. And we've been set apart as his sons that he's bringing in to glory. So when we look at the Old Testament... In Exodus chapter 29, I'll take just a couple of minutes to look over there. In Exodus chapter 29, we see that the blood of the sacrifice is necessary for the sanctification. In chapter 29, verse 20, it says, You shall slaughter the, the ram and take some of its blood and put it on the lobe of Aaron's right ear, and on the lobes of his son's right ears, and on the thumbs of the right hands, and on the big toes of the right feet. You might wonder why, why the lobes, why the thumbs, why the big toes, because it has everything to do with what you hear, what you do, and where you go. It's sanctification of their bodies. And then it says, you shall take some of the blood that is on the altar and some of the anointing oil and sprinkle it on Aaron and on his garments and on his sons and on his son's garments with him, so he and his garments shall be consecrated or sanctified, as well as his sons and his son's garments with him. So the garments speak of their flesh, of their outer man. 
And so if it's true, and this argument's gonna be later when he's, uh, Hebrews is talking about Aaron, but if it's true that the blood of the sacrifice was necessary for the high priest himself, the one who goes between me and God and makes sanctification for me, if the blood of the sacrifice was necessary for Aaron and for his sons that they might be sanctified, then so much more so is it true for everyone. And thus, Hebrews says in chapter 9, verse 22, in chapter 9, verse 22, that according to the law, almost all things are cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. We don't need to ask why it's like that. I mean, you could do a lot of teaching on why it's like that. But when it comes down to it, it just is like that. And it has always been like that. And so the blood of Jesus Christ is necessary for our sanctification. That is fitting. This, this theme is throughout Hebrews, and we're going to come to these verses, but uh, just for time's sake, I'm not going to open them, but I could give you some. If you're taking notes, you could write them down, look them, look them up now, because they're really good. But Hebrews 10.10, 10, Hebrews 10.14, 10, uh, 10.29, and 13.12, and in many other places. This theme is being taken up right here in two, chapter 2, but it's going to be carried on and repeated over and over again throughout Hebrews, that his sacrifice is necessary for our sanctification. His suffering was fitting to the Father because God so loved the world, because he wanted to bring us and wants to bring us into that glory. So look for a minute here at verse 11. In verse 11, we read, for both he who sanctifies, that's Jesus, and those who are sanctified, that's his church, are all from one Father, um, for which reason he's not ashamed to call them brethren. I, really, I want you to notice and your uh, particular uh, version might have something different written there, uh, but where it says Father, that's written in italics because that's not in the original. In the original Greek, it does not say they are all from one Father. It says they are all from one, okay? And the point that's being made here, I'm not denying that we're all from one Father. Jesus is from the Father. We are from the Father. We're all created uh, we are created by the Father. He is eternally existent with the Father. But that's not what's being said. What, what's being said here, and it's really important, is that he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified, they must be of one blood. Okay? If there exist some kind of beings on other planets, which I personally don't believe they do. But let's say they do. Okay? Like everybody in Nevada thinks. And a Messiah came from Jupiter or something. I don't know. He couldn't save me because he's not of my blood. You understand? They must be of the same blood. Aaron had to be of the same blood as the Israelites. They were of the same family. Aaron had sin. His sin is glaring in the, in the book of Exodus. And they only had the blood of animals. So all it could do is just appease God until Jesus came. It was looking forward to Jesus Christ. But what it's saying is that Jesus, and put your name in there, Kevin, are of the same blood. This is actually really amazing. I'm related to Jesus by blood. And I'm not Jewish, 
But if you go back far enough, you're going to find a common ancestor of Jesus and Kevin. It might just be Noah. You might have to go that far back, but we're actually of the same blood. We're of the same DNA. We're the same person. There's the first Adam, and there's the last Adam. And Jesus is the last Adam. And so because he's of one blood with us, and no animal could ever do this for me, he's not ashamed to call me his brother. You really ought to just say that out loud. Jesus is not ashamed to call me his brother. Say it, or sister if you want. Say it. You really should probably look at yourself in the mirror and say that every day. I don't know. Because we get such a feeling that Jesus is ashamed of us. Or that we're just not living up to everything. And there's a difference between the challenge of, I know I need to grow in the Lord. You don't ever want to lose that, because you do. And feeling like you've just been put down all the time. And there's a real spirit of just putting each other down all the time in our nation today. And, and it's pretty strong. And people come into this church and they feel like they're being put down or rejected. And, and, and we have to fight against that. Because Jesus is not ashamed to say that you're my brother. He's not ashamed to take me into glory. He's not ashamed to bring me to his Father. There's only one time that Jesus says he would be ashamed of me. He said that if you will not confess me before men, then I will not confess you before my Father. Then I'm ashamed of you. But then I'm not really a believer, am I? I'm not really in Christ then, am I? So the big question here and the challenge to the Hebrews and to us today is if he is not ashamed of me, why are we so ashamed of him? Think about it. We should never be ashamed of him. He is superior to all. We should not, of course we're not ashamed of him when we're at church. I'm talking about when we're at work, when we're living our lives, you know, and, and we... we He's not ashamed of us. I don't know if proud is the right word because I can never think of a better word. You know, but I tell, my ki- I tell my kids I'm proud of them. I said to Frank today when we were walking out, I said, I'm just really proud of you. And he said, why? I, go, I don't know, because you're my son. I don't have to have a reason. I'm just proud of you because you're my son. And I know that in uh, my failures that I could not be feeling even one-tenth of what the Father feels for us. He wants to bring us and is bringing us unto glory. Okay, I'm not going to get to verses 14 through 18. I'm going to end right here, but we need to look at this. And we'll just pick that up next week. Um, That's just the way it goes. I don't want to keep it too long, and I'm already putting too much out there probably for you. But look with me at Psalm 22. At Psalm 22. There's two places in the Old Testament that I want to look, because that's what's quoted here. Uh, It says, He is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, and, and actually verses 14 through 18, I might say, read, read those in the context of everything I've been saying, and we will spend some time looking at them next week, because they're hugely important. <laughs> um, so look, look with me at Psalm 22. This is what's being quoted here, and this is a messianic psalm, and every Jew then would have known this to be a messianic psalm, and I'm not sure how much they thought that this talks so clearly about crucifixion. But I'm sure when they read it, as they read Hebrews, they realized what the Holy Spirit is indicating here. So in Psalm 22, you could read the whole thing, but I'm just going to read verses um, 15 through 18 to begin with. Um, actually, just 
Let me read from 14. It says, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a pot sherd, and my tongue cleaves to my jaws. And you lay me in the dust of death. For do- Think about Jesus on the cross. It's a clear picture of crucifixion. For dogs have surrounded me, a band of evildoers has encompassed me, they pierced my hands and my feet, I can count all my bones, they look, they stare at me, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. And then look at verse 22. It says, I will tell of your name to my brethren, in the midst of the assembly I will praise you. So in the midst of this messianic psalm that's describing the crucifixion of Jesus and his suffering for us. That's what's being drawn on in Hebrews to say that he's not ashamed to call you his brothers. Jesus said it like this, no man has greater love than this, that he would lay down his life for his friends. He is dying on that cross for us. He is dying on that cross for people that he calls friends and he calls brothers. And then in Isaiah chapter 8, that's the other verse that's being quoted here. In Isaiah chapter 8, over in Hebrews it says, um, I will put my trust in him, and again behold I and the children whom God has given me. And then in verse 14 of Hebrews chapter 2 it says, Therefore since the children share in flesh and blood, and we're going to pick up with that next week, a little bit of an uncomfortable place to cut it off maybe because it just flows into that, but we'll, I'll remind you of that and we'll come at that with ne- next week and you can be looking at that this week at home. But in Isaiah chapter 8, go with me over there, Isaiah chapter 8, this is what's being quoted in Hebrews. It says, uh, I'm, I'm going to take it in the context because that's what we need to do with this. It says in verse 12, you are not to say it is a conspiracy in regard to all that this people call a conspiracy. Not because it's not a conspiracy. Maybe it is. But you are not to say that. Because you are not to fear what they fear or be in dread of it. Maybe there's perfectly good reason to be afraid of it. And it's something awful. But you are not to be afraid of it, it says. It is the Lord of hosts whom you should regard as holy. And he shall be your fear. And he shall be your dread. Then he shall become a sanctuary. But... To both the houses of Israel, a stone to strike and a rock to stumble over, and a snare and a trap for the inhabitants of Jerusalem. So is he our sanctuary, is he our refuge, or is he our stumbling stone or our trap? Many will stumble over them, then they will fall and be broken, they will even be snared and caught. Bind up the testimony, seal the law or the teaching among my disciples, and I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, I will even look eagerly for him, looking for that captain of our salvation. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me. This is Jesus saying this, according to Hebrews. Behold, I and the children, we are the children, whom the Lord has given me, are for signs and wonders in Israel from the Lord of hosts, who dwells on Mount Zion. And then it says, When they say to you, consult the mediums and the spiritists who whisper and mutter, Should not a people consult their God? Stop looking at your horoscope. Stop trying to read your fortune somewhere. Stop trying to contact the dead. I've been pastor long enough to know that that stuff is in churches all over. 
Stop doing it. Why? Why would you do it, it says. You have a living God. You have something so much better. Why, why would you consult the dead on behalf of the living? To the law and the testimony. If they do not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn, no early light. They will pass through the land hard-pressed and famished, and it will turn out that when they are hungry, they will be enraged and curse their king and their God as they face upward. Then they will look to the earth and behold distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be driven away into darkness. Now, the reason I read all that, I'll tell you in just a second. And I'm not going to read it because of time, but if you'll read on in chapter 9, it's, it's all these messy, you know, wonderful counselor, mighty God. It's very obvious that this is all talking about Jesus, okay? And how a light is going to appear to the Gentiles, right? I mean, you read through the rest of these verses and you know them already. Every Christmas you read them. They're in the New Testament also. But here's what's being said here in chapter 8 that's being referenced in Hebrews, okay? He's not ashamed to call you his, his children. He's not ashamed to call you his, his sons, his, his brothers, right? But if you're ashamed of him and you are shrinking away from him and you are slowly drifting away from him, you need to realize where you're going to end up. Because that's what Isaiah 8 is saying. Either Jesus Christ is your refuge, either he is your, your strong tower, Either the righteous run into him and they are saved, or he will become a stumbling block and a trap for you. Because he's not going to compromise. He's not going to change his plan for our lives and for this church. So we either follow him or we'll be destroyed by not following him. We'll be shipwrecked eventually. We'll get so far off course. And according to Isaiah chapter 8, We'll end up like the people of this world are going to end up. We'll be laying in the dust with our faces to heaven, cursing God for ever even creating us, and blaming God for everything that's ever happened. And then we'll roll over with our faces down, and there'll be nothing but darkness, gloom, anguish forevermore. It's a really strong warning. But I promise you, Hebrews is just going to get stronger with its warnings. Some people are afraid to read Hebrews because of things that it says. But every one of these warnings, and, and I'm going to talk about this several times as we're going through Hebrews, especially when we get to chapter 6, every one of these warnings are really the kind of warnings that parents give to their children. They're challenges. Okay? It's not, it's not trying to say this is going to happen to you, but it's trying to get you to realize that this will happen to you. You can't just play church. You really follow Jesus with your heart and continue to grow and enter from glory to glory into his presence. Or in backsliding, if you want to call it, in, in fading away from him and drifting off from him, eventually you end up in a total shipwreck of the faith. So they're being called back to Jesus. Come back. Come back. He has suffered for you. Take up your cross and follow him also. Amen. So we'll stop with that, and then we'll pick up with verse 14 next, next week. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word, and Jesus, I just want to so thank you for suffering and dying for us, for being obedient to go to that cross. I just thank you that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you make alive our mortal bodies. I just pray this evening that each one of us, Lord, would be encouraged by this word tonight to fix our eyes on you, Jesus, to remember the course that you've set, 
to listen to your commands and pay more careful attention to your gospel and to the vision that you've put before us. Let us not be slack. Let us not be lazy. Let us not just compromise and say that, well, I just don't want to rock the boat. I don't want to make any waves here. I'll just keep going and keep going the way things are going. Because may, maybe the truth is that we won't just keep going that way. That eventually we'll be so far off course we don't, won't even remember how we got off course in the first place. So Lord, draw us back to you. Back to your word. Let this teaching and this law be amongst your disciples. And let us guide us into your glory because that's where you are leading us. Into your glory, Lord. I give you praise and glory and honor. And I just pray that that glory would be in this church and that your spirit would fill us with your life and make alive not only our individual mortal bodies, but this mortal body of this church, this body of Christ. In Jesus' name. We hope you enjoyed the message. Before you leave, we want to remind you that if you want to continue receiving updates on new sermons, that you subscribe to our podcast. If you want more information on how to contact us, make sure to check out our website at urringtonvineyardfellowship.com. And we'll see you next time on the YVF Podcast.